So good afternoon, everyone. Please sit comfortably. Well, it's good to be together again face-to-face after is it two or three years of online session. Very good. Um, as I was putting this talk together, I was uh, considering making the title of it something to do with sacredness, and I'll get to that. Um, But as I was reflecting on it and about um, uh, a fairly common kind of way that people have of being in the world as a, you know, when they come to see me as a a counsellor, you know, or um, what people tell me during Dyson and so on, is what, what comes through so much from almost everyone um, is a sense of busyness. And, um, and, and everyone seems to be, lives seems to be getting busier and busier and busier. And to some degree, it's the demands of our workplace or the demands of our, that our culture places on us and so on, in terms of accountability and so on. But it's very important to reflect on how much we actually generate that busyness for ourselves. And how come? And I'm sure all cultures, you know, in all, all times have all had their, their own problems and so on. But busyness seems to be a very contemporary kind of issue. And if you think back before European people were here in this place, um, I'm sure Aboriginal people didn't live in a utopia and they all had their own problems, as most cultures do, the people living together. But I very much doubt whether busyness was one of the issues. You know, they need to get enough to eat and they need to be safe and they had plenty of time just to experience being and to uh, enjoy just existing, right, rather than being caught up in so much busyness. But because we're in the busyness all the time, it's kind of like the sea that we we swim in and we don't even realise, we just become so habituated to it. And um, so we're all like, kind of like, like hamsters on the busyness wheel going round and round and round. And when we come and do something like this, do a session, um, it's like the, the hamster wheel's been going round and round and round and round and then when we all stop and we meditate, it's like someone put a stick through the spokes of the wheel and it stops suddenly, right? Everything stops suddenly. And you're just there sitting and breathing, you know, and, and doing things together in a, in a format. And, uh, you know, when the hamster's been going round and round and round for so long and then suddenly it just stops, it goes, well, what do I do now, right? You know... I was so busy going round and round, there must be something else I've got to do. And, and it's kind of disconcerting when we get off that busyness wheel in our everyday lives, in our modern lives, and we come here, it's like suddenly it all stops. And, and that's why the, often the first day, or the first and second day, is often a bit, a bit sort of discombobulating, you know, concerning. It's like, we're so, so busy being in that busy mind, we don't know what to do next. And it takes a while before we actually um, settle in and just start to enjoy the non-busy experience of just being present to what is and enjoying it. There's a transition period that actually takes place. 
Now, what I want to bring you to and bring your attention to specifically, um, and I don't know whether you recited this sutra this morning or not, but I'm sure you'll come across it. But um, where my focus has been a lot lately um, is on what we call sacredness. And, uh, and I want to just recite to you again the opening words of Torre Zenji's Bodhisattva's Vow. When I consider the true nature of all things and all living creatures, I find them to be the sacred forms of the Tathagata's never-failing essence. Each moment, each particle of matter is no other than the Tathagata's inexpressible radiance. And if I can emphasise some words for you, when I consider the true nature of all things, all things and all living creatures, I find them to be the sacred forms of the Tathagata's never-failing essence. Each moment, each particle is no other than the Tathagata's inexpressible radiance. Nothing escapes it, everything for the whole. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you reflect on how religions form, whether it's Buddhism or Christianity or Islam, Sufism, um, indigenous religions, so on, someone somewhere along the line had this experience. Someone had this experience of seeing the sacredness of everything, right? The fly on the wall, you know, the particle of dust, the moat going through the air. They had that experience and then, as they shared it with other people, um, you know, they started to put words to those experiences, you know. Buddha, Buddha nature, Tathagata, God, you know, the ground of being, whatever we may, may want to call it. We started to put a word to it. And then people then started to preach, you know, so other people could experience this. And so they had um, sacred texts, you know, and then temples are built and then statues are built, you know, icons are built. And all of that becomes sacred. You know, all of, all of the religious iconography, that becomes sacred and that's what everyone then worships. They worship Christ, they worship Buddha. Mm-hmm. And that's not what these original people were talking about. They all were saying this, that everything is Buddha nature, everything is sacred. And then we've gone, okay, well, now we'll, we'll just see that, you know, the, you know, the statue of the Virgin Mary is sacred or the Buddha is sacred. Right? And it's a classic case of um, mistaking the pointing finger for the moon. Mm-hmm. Even as I was putting this um, talk together, I thought, oh, I'll just Google what sacredness means, do you know, what they come up with. And it was exactly that. Sacred things, sacred objects are things which um, are separate to ordinary everyday life things which we think are very special and we worship them and we we think they have a special kind of value. That's completely different to what this says. Mm -hmm. According to this, a dead dead rat is is, is sacred, right? Dust is sacred. Even evil is sacred. Like it's like a dark energy. Everything is sacred. Mm-hmm. 
very, very different. And yet we, um, we all get lost in the iconography or we get lost in the busyness or we get lost in the grasping and aversion of our life, chasing the pleasant and avoiding the unpleasant. And then our little escape route for a time is to have a religion where we worship something which is sacred, right? And so I'm sure it has some value to do that, but it misses the whole point. Well, it certainly misses the whole point of, of Zen practice. An example of it is just from everyday life, and you see it in children. Um, but in our office in North Sydney, where we work, um, there's a family that lives upstairs, and they're, they're a lovely family, a couple and two, two young girls. And sometimes we go past them and say hello and so on. And one day they were about to get in their car to go somewhere, and I said to the two little girls, oh, what are you doing today? And one girl just beamed at me, you know, it was like a total thin response, you know, to a question. She said, what are you doing today? She said, I'm going to Orange, right? Orange is a town in New South Wales. I'm going to Orange, right? It was like, wow, what an amazing thing to do to go to Orange. It wasn't even just Orange, it was all the getting there as well, you know? And, and, and you could see the joy, you know, in just this ordinary activity um, of a child. And we somehow, we, we often lose that as we get older, as we get caught up in not recognising the sacredness in everything, in everyday, everyday events. And even, you know, when, when you're practising Zen, you get in, in touch with um, everyday experience more. Like, so... Just an everyday event, you, you go down to the, to the local shops to buy some bread. You know, you go, oh, well, I've got to get some bread now and some milk and I better go down and get it. And it's kind of like just something, another busy thing we've got to do. But that's very different from going, I'm going down the road to get some bread. Wow. Bread. What an amazing thing. Bread. You know, all the people who got together to make that loaf of bread. And here I am walking down the road and there's blue sky, right? There's people going past and there's flowers and there's a wind on my face. How amazing. You know, when, when, we, when we live our life like that, everything is sacred, you know. Um, and what I particularly like about um, Japanese culture, you know, and I guess the, the same influence on... Japanese culture is that um, in their language, um, in their language structure, um, they, their language structure expresses the, the sacredness of everyday objects. So the word, for example, ohashi in Japanese means chopsticks, but the o in front of the hashi means honourable chopsticks, right? So every object is honourable. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you go to a Zen temple, there's often a sign up in the kitchen which says, pots and pans are Buddha's body, mm-hmm. to, to remind us that all of these everyday objects are sacred, right? as this sutra tells us over and over again. Not just the Buddha on the altar, right? but the pots and pans and the crumbs that fell on the floor too. Mm-hmm. And the garbage can, they're all sacred. The thing is, we live in a world um, 
You know, it's important to kind of understand not just Zen culture, um, but also to understand the larger culture within which we operate. And it's the influence that it has on us, consciously or, or unconsciously. And we, we live in a time um, of what you could call utilitarianism. So we value things in terms of what their use is, right? So is it going to make me money? Do you know? Is it going to make me feel pleasure? Is it going to be stimulating, interesting? Everything's got, only has value in terms of its utility. And um, that's a very, you might call a secular way of living. Um, but it's very much in contrast to the experience where we're cultivating here and, and, and looking for. Right? It's only just select things. I'll pick them out, the things that have utility for me. And it comes back to me. If it has utility for me or not. Is it going to make me happy or is it not going to make me happy? And we can even bring that approach to Zen practice. Right? Well, is, is it working? Is it, is it going to make me happy or not? And as soon as we get into that question or that mode of thinking, we've lost the point of it. Mm-hmm. To go back to what I said about we're on the hamster wheel and when, when we get here, the wheel stops turning, you know, and we start to get off the hamster wheel. And what often arises for everyone at some point in session, often in the beginning, is kind of that sense of, well, what really is the point of doing this? It, it feels kind of pointless, right? And good. If you, if, you, if you get into that, that point where it seems pointless, well, good. You're getting somewhere. Uh-huh. But when you're so busy and everything has to have utility, that's the point. And when you just sit still and do nothing and be quiet and just become receptive, then, then of course, first of all, you're going to think, it's pointless. Right? But you sit long enough with the pointlessness and stop trying to conceptualise it or make meaning out of it, and then you'll, you'll see that that, that pointlessness is um, wonderful. Right? Hard to describe it, but you, it's, everything has stopped. You know, it's pointless, but everything has value. Right? It's the experience we come to. And that's what we... That's what we deepen into as, um, as session goes on. And, and generally speaking, all of us, you know, by the end of a session, have to some degree touched that place, you know, where our, when our minds have quietened down, we're not grasping after experience or avoiding so much, that dynamic in our mind is, is settled. We, we, we do experience some... Uh, some touching base with the Buddha nature and everything. And the world comes alive a little bit more, you know, and we just see a kind of a, a vibrancy in everything that is and gets to speak to us. In the words of Dogen, um, he stated in one of his essays that delusion is a self advancing towards the 10,000 things. Awakening is the 10,000 things confirming the self. 
And then when we experience that, that awakening is traceless. There's no, there's no trace of it. There's no, there's no imprint of it. Enlightenment's not a thing. Because it's just we, we touch base with the sacredness of how things were from the very beginning before we realised it. So there's no trace of it. But delusion is the self advancing towards the 10,000 things. The self wanting to go out there, searching, looking for an experience, something that'll make it different. Mm-hmm. And what we... I practised probably a lot like that when I was younger until there was a, a shift started to, ha- to happen. But you can do that for so long and it wears itself out because you realise it's just another version of the hamster wheel. But where your practice turns around, you sit in that state of pointlessness, not grasping at any kind of experience, and you receive. And you're receiving all the time. That's what Dogen is referring to here, awakening is the 10,000 things confirming the self. The rain on the pond is confirming the self. The greenery, right? Your faces in front of me, the carpet, the picture, the chairs, all of those, all of those things is a confirmation of the self. But if I'm going out there trying to grab it, then I'll just get further and further away from it. So remember as you do use Zazen, really, really keep that in mind that you're you're just being still and quiet to be a receptor, to be receptive to every experience that comes and goes within your moment. All there is at any point in, in time is what is coming and what is going in the present moment, the flow of the present moment, coming, going, coming, going. That's all there is. That's all, all that we could call reality. Right? We don't know anything else beyond that, really. But we know that. We know that there's something coming and there's something going all the time. And that is the meaning of the word tathagata. Tathagata means the one who just comes and just goes. There's no fixed self. That's the name for the Buddha, the awakened one. No fixed self. Just that which comes, that which goes. Bird song. That which comes, then it goes. Recently, um, Diana and I watched a, uh, a documentary of Leonard Cohen, and um, as many of you may know, um, apart from being a, a, a wonderful singer and wonderful songwriter, um, he was a Zen monk for six years in Mount Baldy um, with Sazaki Roshi as his teacher. He's there for six years doing Zazen um, in a very dedicated way. And when he was interviewed about this experience in the documentary, he said, well, I didn't... What my, my sort of... The summary of my whole experience there is that I didn't find what I was looking for, but the searching resolved itself. And, and, and I could really... I can, as a, someone who's practised... Zen for some time as well. Those words really resonate with me. That's my own experience as well. I didn't find what I was looking for. 
but the, re- the searching result itself, it's like there's nothing to search for because it's all here. Mm-hmm. It's all here waiting, ready for you to just receive it. Mm-hmm. The, the, we have to start with searching. Somehow that's part of the process. But at some point, you give up the searching because it's pointless. Mm-hmm. And then it's like in another, it's like in another uh, sutra that we read, read Haku and Zenji, it's like a, um, a child of a wealthy home searching among the poor, someone in thirst crying out for water. It's always here all the time. But our searching takes us away from it. We think it's elsewhere. And uh, when of all that, that searching, all that grasping, all that busyness falls away, well, here it all is. Okay, thank you.